Good morning and welcome to Some Zero Headlines. This is Avery Pagan. Today we are joined by Peter Galgay, the CIO of Singapore-based Amatel Capital, here to pick up our discussion on Burford and the case built by Muddy Waters. Galgay sheds light on a close competitor in litigation funding and pioneer in the space, IMF Bentham, comparing the two on their use of fair value accounting and case selection. He also addresses the claims against Burford in response to Artem Fokin's view shared earlier this month. Once again, please welcome Peter Galgay. Great. Peter, welcome to the Sum Zero podcast. Um, you know, we're happy to have you um, uh, talk about litigation finance, specifically uh, IMF Bantham, uh, Bantham uh, trading out of Australia. Um, and, you know, we'd also kind of like to get your thoughts on the Burford situation, um, which we discussed on our last podcast. Um, but just, just to kick things off, can you maybe quickly introduce yourself um, as well as your fund, Amatel? Sure, absolutely. And first off, you know, pleasure to have this chance to to speak with you, Divya. Um, so I'm the chief investment officer for Amatel Capital. Our firm is a Singapore-based private investment firm with long-term capital. We have an absolute return mandate, and we invest globally across asset classes. Uh, in my own personal background, prior to Amatel, I, w- I was a portfolio manager at Deutsche Asset Management where I managed equity funds. And prior to Deutsche, I worked at Ernst & Young within the firm's uh, fraud investigation and dispute services practice. At Amatel, our, uh, about half of our portfolio is invested in the public markets, and we run this ourselves internally. This is mainly uh, global equities long short. There's some fixed income. There's some macro in there as well. Um, the other half of the portfolio, we invest in private markets, and this is a mix of direct investments, allocations to hedge funds, and also investments in longer-term illiquid opportunities. Mm-hmm. In this, this last category, we really focus on allocating to idiosyncratic opportunities with compelling risk-reward profiles, and the idea is to find investments that will generate attractive returns that are completely independent of the markets and the broader economy. And so with this in mind, we have spent a considerable amount of time over the past three and a half years studying litigation funding. Um, and as your listeners uh, you know, may be aware, um, you know, we recently published a 46-slide deck on IMF Bentham on your platform and would definitely encourage anyone interested in learning more about litigation funding more broadly, um, and IMF in particular, to to review our presentation. Yeah, you know, this, this I think this this um, this podcast is going to be a really good uh, um, intro to that report, which obviously you know goes into very significant detail on on your views on IMF. Um, but just to start off, what 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 are your views on litigation um, finance as an asset class, um, just as a market? Um, I, I know you have a lot of strong views around. Um, you know, litigation finance uh, and how it might perform in a recessionary environment. Um, but just if you can just kind of walk uh, folks through what it is, I think that'd be helpful to just give a backdrop. Yeah. So, I mean, so litigation funding, I mean, what it is in a nutshell is it's third, third party capital funding a plaintiff and litigation. And you basically 
provide you know you you finance their legal fees and their legal expenses, and in return, you earn a, a portion of any economic recovery that results from either a win or a settlement. So that that's it in a nutshell, and it yeah. can take many different forms. The reason why the asset class is so attractive and, and is is increasing in size you know rapidly over the past few years is that it is idiosyncratic you know it, it is the return stream is completely independent of the markets and that in and of itself is attractive but especially when we are late cycle like we are for allocators you know for the endowments the pension funds i mean this is really what you're looking for we certainly think the business you know it's it's recession proof by being you know, uh, virtue of being idiosyncratic. We we also look at it as a recession winner for two reasons. One, from a business point of view, um, coming out of a, a deep recession, um, there will be likely more opportunities, higher quality opportunities to finance litigation. Um, there'll be more insolvency work. And and they def, uh, IMF definitely experienced that coming out of 2008. And and they they've spoken to that that you know the, the crisis did create more opportunities and interestingly I, I don't know if this is directly a result of this but the the returns in the in the subsequent years actually were, were some of the highest they ever had um, that's that's one point the second point is that you know if you're managing long only long only uh, funds which most of the shareholders in, in IMF are. Well, you have retail investors as well, but the institutional guys—it's mostly long onlys. You have to put your money somewhere. You know, I mean, you—you—the most you can probably go is ten percent cash, and so your your capital has to go somewhere. And you know, if if you're going into a recession or in the middle of a recession, what a, what a great place to park your capital. And the returns are incredibly attractive. You know, the top funders globally have have put up very very attractive uh, you know track records over the past you know five ten years. Um, so, so just to take so, a step back, what what is the total addressable market for litigation funding? It's it's hard to say. Like, there's no definitive data out there. Um, we're probably talking about maybe maybe two billion in, in a year right now. You know, I, I can imagine for a startup or a smaller business um, getting into a lawsuit with a much larger player. Um, this sort of opportunity might make a lot of sense because they don't necessarily want to waste, you know, a huge portion of their cash reserves on litigation. But what would you say is kind of from a, a corporate size standpoint, maybe the sweet spot of where companies um, might lean heavily on on a firm like IMF? I don't, I don't, you know, they're better off, better positioned to answer that question. But what I would say from what I've seen and through, you know, through my conversations with IMF and with, and with other funders, is I don't necessarily think there, think there is a, a sweet, spot, sweet spot per se. Um, and the reason for that is, yeah, the classic example of why a corporate would, would get involved with a funder is that they don't have the financial wherewithal to pursue the litigation. Or, or a twist in that would be they could afford it, but they would much rather allocate that capital to you know, core business activities. But, there, you know, there, but there's, some, there's something else that's less appreciated in that is – Litigation funding can actually help corporates improve their earnings profile, and that's because litigation expenses. So you know, I mean, and, and any any large multinational will spend millions and millions of dollars every year on litigation. Those those ongoing expenses are treated 
as ongoing and above the line, whereas any recoveries from litigation are treated as exceptional and below the line. And so if you're as a CFO, if you're able to basically off balance sheet these expenses, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're improving your, your earnings. And so that's really attractive for CFOs. And, and they are just now kind of waking up to this, um, to the benefits more broadly of, of litigation funding. You, you mentioned that the growth rate of the industry uh, or growth in the industry. I mean, what, I mean, is, can you quantify that at all in terms of? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I can speak. I mean, we've seen a number of funds in the past couple of years go out and raise, raise funds of $500 million in the past 12 months versus, you know, 150 yeah. Uh, maybe two years ago. Certainly with, with IMF, since 2017, over a 12-month period, they went out and raised about $300 million of capital. And in the past 12 months, they raised a billion dollars of capital. So, it, you know, the, the supply of capital is increasing dramatically, but the demand for that capital is also increasing dramatically. And, you know, to Burford's credit, one of the things they've done a really good job of is, is to create awareness for the asset class, they, they've done a good job of, of creating marketing uh, materials and, and doing surveys. They just create more awareness and, and try to get more data about you know the growth of the asset class. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think I think that's that's a fair statement. Um, what's the typical um, the typical terms of a of a fund that an IMF might raise or Burford might raise? Um, I mean, is it pretty much the same as a traditional PE fund? Is the fund life the same? What's sort of the, um, just from a term standpoint, I'm curious how they're structured. Yeah, I mean, I would describe the average fund as being, you know, a, a seven to ten, 10 year life. Typically, the investment period would be, so it's, it would be a closed end fund. Um, investment period typically would be anywhere from three to four years. Uh, the average case takes three years to conclude, but they can they can definitely run longer than that, which is mm -hmm. why you would need like a 10 year life for the for these funds. Yeah. Um, most managers would try to charge 2% management fee. And then the performance fee can be 20% can be 30% just depends on on the manager. Yeah. They would have you know, hurdle rates typically of around 8%. Um, but they, for the most part, they, they all kind of look and feel the same from a from a structure point of view. It's, it's almost identical to a traditional PE fund. Very similar. Yeah. Uh, typically, the way the litigation funding agreements are structured, you're the first money out, and so potentially you have a settlement, but it's it's really for peanuts. Uh, it's a fraction of what the plaintiff was was suing for. Yeah. And, but are, are but, settlements typically the most common um, outcome? Yeah, hundred percent. And and I guess that that's a good good explanation as to why. IMF has a 90% success rate, which seems astronomical. It's because if you look back over their 18-year history, out of the 190-plus cases that have concluded, 80% were via settlement, and then you know 10% were wins, 10% were losses. Um, so one of the things that I, I – one of the stats I thought was really interesting about IMF in particular was – um, just their success rate. And you mentioned you know, on your piece in SunZero that they have a 90% success rate. Um, uh, over an 18 year uh, track record. I mean, how do they achieve that? I mean, what's your sense? I mean, what, what is it about their screening process, the team over there? Um, 
that, that would yield those kind of results. Yeah, it, it's it's a remarkable track record, and uh, you know, the, I mean, I would point out the track records. It's it's even audited by by Ernst and Young uh, or by EY. Um, you know, ninety percent is really high, and especially because IMF focuses on single case pre-judgment litigation, um, whereas some funders like Burford will spend will focus more on portfolio deals, um, and portfolio deals just by, by virtue of being cross-collateralized across a pool of cases, your success rate should be, should be high because you, you have a much better chance of coming out um, with an economic recovery as a funder. But the return profile will be lower because it, it is less risky. I mean, it, it is cross-collateralized. So to have, a, to have a 90% success rate when you do a single case, uh, pre-judgment funding, it, it is remarkable. I think it, it comes down to their investment process that they've refined over 18 years. I mean, they're very, very disciplined. They're very strict. They're very proud of their process. Um, and it's certainly something that as we've evaluated, you know, we've, we've done due diligence on eight funders uh, globally. And we, you know, are certainly mindful of the fact that a lot of there's a lot more capital being raised today than there was two, three years ago. And so one of the things that we're looking for is, you know, our funders starting to approve cases at a higher clip. You know, in, in this past year, um, IMF, or I think it was 950 plus cases they evaluated, less than 4% ultimately were approved for, for investment. And so wow. that, that, that rate has not gone up. Um, and that, that's one of the things we're looking for. You know, ultimately, we won't know, and this applies to IMF and the entire industry. We won't know if the returns, if the if the additional capital being raised, will impact the returns for for years down the road. When when these investments, the returns from these investments come and bear fruit. But um, from what we see, you know, we we think we think they're they're in good shape. Yeah, and they're taking on what what is it about forty cases a year? Or what, what sort of the actual number of cases that they, they bring on board. Yeah. So, I mean, they, right now they're funding about 40, 40 cases a year. And, you know, it, it's funny, uh, Artem Foken, who you interviewed last week, you know, he made the point that uh, IMF was indeed a pioneer of the asset class. And then they were kind of leapfrogged by, by Burford. Right. You know, and, and, in that, and in that sense, he, he is correct. I mean, I, IMF was around long before Burford and, the the issue for IMF was that you know it's a firm run by by lawyers and, and lawyers tend to be quite conservative by nature and for a long time they weren't they were really more of an Australian centric firm back then they're, I mean now they're they're truly global but you know as recently as five six years ago they were much more Australian centric and they would fund on average ten cases a year and they would earn returns on that they would they would pay out. 70% of their earnings in dividends, which is crazy when you think about, you know, if you can earn 135% on your capital, you should not be paying out dividends. You should be reinvesting that capital. But they would right. pay out the bulk, they would pay out the bulk of their earnings in dividends, and then they would just keep keep funding 10 new cases a year. So the portfolio wasn't growing. And then they they finally woke up in 2015 and realized, wow, like this industry is taking off and we, we're at risk of getting left behind. Yeah. So they hired, a new, they hired a new CEO in 2015 named Andrew Saker. He came in, um, developed a plan to really make sure that 
IMF would continue to be at the forefront and, and the leader of the industry. And, you know, certainly, you know, Bur Burford has, has grown tremendously during this time as well. Um, IMF, you know, they're now going back four years ago, they were funding on average 10 cases a year. Now they're funding 40 cases a year. The quantum in terms of dollars they're committing is, is five times what they're committing four years ago. Yeah. Um, their, port their portfolio today is five times the size. So they, they've, they realized that they were at risk of missing out and, and they, they took the, the necessary steps. Um, the, the, I guess the, the way in which to do that is you just, did they just quadruple the number of attorneys on their team or um, is there any sort of uh, other tactic they've used to take on more, what's, how have they gone about scaling? Yeah, well, they had to do a number of things. So they had to certainly hire more more litigators, more investment managers. They opened, you know, more offices. So they have offices across Australia. They have four. They have four in the U.S., two in Canada. They have an office in London now. They have an office in Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, so that 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 takes time. That takes that takes money. Um, their their investment team has more than doubled over the past four years. They raise additional capital, so it's not it's not just having the the uh, the human capital, but it's also having the the financial capital, the financial wherewithal. So they they raise debt financing. They they issued um, some equity to raise raise some equity capital, and then and then they did pivot to the to the fund model. So prior to 2017, all of their investments were 100% through their balance sheet, and then they realized that they would be constrained ultimately by their own capital right. and that by raising third-party capital through these funds, it would provide a lot more leverage to the platform. So they went out and, and raised dedicated funds. And what they do now is all investments are made through these funds. It's very clear they'll, they'll have two active funds at any one point in time, one for the U.S. market and then one fund for everything else, so glo global XUS. All investments are made through these funds, and IMF contributes 20% of the capital to each of these funds. So IMF is still investing its capital, but it's doing it as an LP in their own, in their own funds. And I guess now moving a little bit back towards Burford, um, what is your kind of biggest concern with Burford? And, and just if you can just kind of point to some of the differences between how they do business versus IMF, um, I think that'd be really helpful. Sure. Comparing them with IMF in terms of how they invest, the, the big difference is that Burford uh, really focuses on portfolio deals, whereas IMF focuses on, on single case uh, litigation. That, that's the big difference in terms of, in terms of their approach. Um, I guess more topically, you know, the, the controversy around Burford right now is, is on the back of the Muddy Waters report. And you know, we certainly have watched, you know, with fascination, you know, the, the back and forth between Muddy Waters and Burford. Um, and to Burford's credit, because of all the incre the incremental disclosures coming out of this, we are now starting to better appreciate the business from an equity point of view. Um, and look, we, we don't have a, a dog in this fight, just to be very clear. Um, but I, you know, I, I will offer the following view. I mean, we have done, as as you know, I've discussed. We've done a lot of work in this space. We have due diligence eight different funders globally. 
we feel like we know litigation funding as well as any equity investor out there. And for us, when we analyze Burford from an equity perspective, we really struggle to properly assess and value the business. Um, you know, and, and a big part of the controversy surrounding Burford is their use of fair value accounting in which Burford revalues their litigation assets and recognizes the fair value adjustments as income through their P&L statement. And, that, and that's a big difference versus IMF. So IMF carries their cases at cost until completion and only recognizes revenue when the case completes. And so that, that is a huge, huge difference. In fact, that's, that's really probably the biggest difference between them um, from an equity point of view when you're, when you're evaluating these two, two companies. Although I'm sure if you, if you ask both management teams, they would say that there's lots of other, other differences, and there are, but the accounting difference is, is, is huge. So uh, doesn't Burford provide both the IFRS um, uh, reporting plus their own non-GAAP accounting narrative? Look, it, it's, it is confusing, and I mean, even, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what your, what your background is, but a lot of accounting people find this very confusing, and you know, we've had to really sharpen our pencils and, and make sure that we we really understand what we're looking at. Um, you know, the fair value accounting is allowed for under IFRS, um, IFRS 9 specifically. Um, and then, uh, so there's nothing wrong with that per se. They're, they're doing what's required and, and EY signs, signs off on their accounts. Um, and then in addition to that, Burford does provide additional unaudited disclosures Re, uh, relating to their track record, mm -hmm. you know, Roiks by Vintage, and then uh, earlier this year, they, to their credit, they they did release um, a much more detailed disclosure at the individual case level, where they showed all of their cases, the 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 amounts that they committed per case, um, any amounts recovered, um, but that but that's non IFRS, that that's not audited, that's just a separate disclosure. Yeah, yeah. Now the. With IFRS, I mean, this is something that's that's really important, and I think it's kind of gets lost in in all of the conversation around this. So the the fair value accounting, it is allowed under IFRS nine. Again, IMF um, carries their cases at cost, so it's a different treatment. And mo most, um, actually, all all of the funders that we diligenced would carry their cases at cost as well. Some of them had valuation policy language that allowed them. To use fair market um, or fair value adjustments, but none of them actually did. Um, so it is a, so fair value accounting is allowed under IFRS nine. I will say we do think it is inappropriate to use this methodology or this treatment with respect to litigation assets, and that's we say that because one, the fair value adjustments that are made are effectively marked a fantasy, right? There, there's no models right. with in, inputs like interest rates and volatility and then the outcomes outcomes some, it's a, it's some valuation it is it, it yeah. is um and then the second point is that the secondary market there is a secondary market for litigation assets but it is incredibly thin right so anytime right. a hedge fund's looking to buy a piece of you know peterson for example i mean they have to sign ndas go into data rooms right. it's, it's 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 like a, it's like doing a deal and so it's a very, very thin, thin market. So, you know, we, we think it's inappropriate, but that said, there's nothing inherently wrong with fair value accounting, provided that the firm makes 
the necessary disclosures so that investors have a crystal clear understanding of how much revenue and cost is derived from actual recoveries and how much is from fair value adjustments. And, and this is where we have issue with Burford's accounting. And, and let me explain, because this, this might be a bit technical, but I think it's, it's, worth, no, share, it. it's worth sharing, and hopefully people can, can bear with me on this. So Burford's income effectively consists of two line items. The first is net realized gains on investments. The second is fair value movement on investments. So the first line item, net realized gains on investments, this consists of recoveries, both from partial and completed matters, less original cost. And so this one's fairly straightforward. This is basically how what IMF does and how they recognize revenue, except right. IMF only recognizes uh, complete, complete recoveries. They don't recognize partial recoveries, so they wait until the case is concluded. But, but but very similar. The problem is with the second line item, the fair value movement on investments, which actually consists of two separate components. The first component is the fair value adjustment that is made for ongoing cases for that specific period, right? That that's that's what we think of as the markup, right? Okay. The second component is the reversal of any previously recognized fair value adjustments relating to concluded cases from the current period. And if you didn't do this, there would be double counting because right. the, yeah, of course. The, the first item is, is recovery less cost, not, not, the, not the carrying value, right? right? So the problem is that these two components are bundled together as one figure under the line item fair value movement on investments and investors do not know how much income is attributable to each of these two components mm -hmm. and there there are two critical implications that stem from this first for any given reporting period investors have no idea how much burford is actually marking up its cases in fact because of the bundling Burford is systematically understating the size of its fair value adjustments. And the second implication is that investors have no way to assess if the fair value adjustments are reasonable. And you know, this, this was a point made and by Muddy Waters. There's, there's, no, there's not enough clarity, you're saying, on the underlying cases? Uh, or, or do they provide, you know, like how would you diligence whether that you know, fair value is, is, is in the ballpark or not, I mean, you'd have to know something about the underlying case, right? Or pool of cases. I think you, well, Burford makes the point in, in their, their presentation from earlier this week that they cannot provide uh, fair value adjustments at, at the individual case level. And, you know, fair enough. But what they could be doing, and I don't know why they don't, is providing, disclosing the aggregate roll-up of, you know these two components. You know why are they bundled? I mean, just just break them break them out. And if you did that, at least you have the aggregate write up for that period of time. And then in addition to that, like how you know to answer your your question, like how could we assess if we don't have the the case level fair value adjustments? Because even if we had even if we had 
case level data. I mean, you, you can't, we're in no position, position to assess, right? I mean, I, I've read, you know, the, the investment briefings for these things. It, it's, we just, we're not in a position to assess, right? So, but what you could do is if there was more granularity about the losses being recognized when they're, when they're recognized, um, at least then, you know, I think it, we would have a bit more of a feel for how these marks, um, you know, how conservative or, or how aggressive they are. Yeah. And, and look, Burford really tried to address this um, in their presentation this, this past week. You know, and they argue that the fair value adjustments have been ultimately conservative. And they went on to disclose that, you know, of the 76 concluded cases since inception, that they only recognized a net fair value markup of $96 million prior to recovery. So, and, and then they, they had a table breaking down the math and it, it seems, it does come across as seemingly conservative, you know, the, the markups prior to recovery. The problem is that the current portfolio of 111 cases has been marked up by a staggering $717 million. So, you know, the 96 million on the first 76 cases seems almost irrelevant compared to the scope and the magnitude right. of the market. You were hoping that IMF would um, be less conservative in their reporting uh, or at least offer, you know, uh, something, uh, you know, a non-IFRS, you know, adjusted set of numbers so that people could, you know, more closely appreciate um, the, the real value of their um, investments in litigation. Is that right? That you're actually hoping that they uh, well, give a little bit more color than what uh, what they've been doing in the past. Yes, but let me let me let me let me clarify that. I definitely would not want them to stop reporting the way they do, right? So that yeah. on on a cost basis, it provides incredible transparency to what they do, and to this point, and and, and IMF's disclosures are really fantastic. They when a case, when they fund a new case or a case concludes, they make disclosures on a single case basis with the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, uh -huh. providing as much detail as they can on that single case in, in real time, right? So as soon as that case concludes, they'll put out um, a notice with the exchange. Prior to IMF raising their funds, when 100% of their investments were through their balance sheet. It was incredible. This was something that really gave us a lot of confidence in allocating capital to IMF. Is that at that point in time they they had a 16-year track record, and we were able to take all of their individual single case disclosures that they make over time, and basically recreate their financials on a, on a bottom-up basis and then tie that out and reconcile that with their consolidated financials and, and they tie it out beautifully. Um, now you have to make assumptions yeah. about their op, their OPEX and their tax rate and all that, but, but from a revenue point of view, you, you, could, you could tie it out. And from a gross profit point of view, you could tie it out. And so IMF is always going to, you know, they, they're big on transparency and disclosures and, and that's, you know, that, that's never going to change. What I would, what I've pushed them to do over the past, you know, two plus years, is try to provide some, some, some non-GAAP or non-IFRS metrics to help investors think about 
how to assess the business, how to value the business, because they had a lot of retail investors, Australian retail investors in their in their, in their stock, who frankly will have no ability, no chance to, to really value this business, uh, because because of the cost accounting. So that right. that that's what my point was referring to. But yeah, what's the and, current valuation gap between the two, uh, between IMF and and um, and Burford? Uh, roughly, I think Burford's around two point two billion US, and IMF is about five hundred million US. So it's about. But, but, but about if you look at it on a, on, I'm just curious on a multiple basis. I'm not sure if you look at it on a cash flow basis or earnings or what. But um, yeah. if you look at this, you know, compare across the same calendar year on a forward basis. Um, What's the current multiple gap between the two? You know? Yeah, the, the, on an earnings basis, really, really difficult to do that kind of comparison because of the difference in accounting. The easiest thing to do would be to compare them on a price book basis. Okay. And in order to do that, you have to adjust uh, Burford's book value. You have to strip out the, the fair value adjustments yeah, um, that that have been made to their portfolio. So, so once you do that, and you're comparing IMF and Burford on an apples apples basis, both uh, I think IMF right now is about on 2.8 times book, and and Burford's on like 3.1 times. So Burford's like a 10 percent premium to to IMF. Okay, so it's not dramatic, um, but there is a, there's a premium to to uh, to Burford. Um, you have them trading at five times. Um, uh, 2021 cash flow is it or what's your what's your current valuation the way we think about valuation is we we think about uh how much capital they're putting to work and again it's going to take some time for that capital to get deployed to get invested and ultimately to earn a return on that but we think about the business in in a kind of steady state basis with the capital that they've already raised and then we split split out the returns you know how much of that's from their balance sheet versus the funds and what we do is we come up with like a normalized income and the, you know, the critical assumption there, I mean, there, there are a couple, but the critical assumptions are the return on invested capital that they're, that they're generating, you know, so mm-hmm. are they still able to generate, you know, returns of a, around 135% or will it, will it uh, tick down over time? Um, how much capital they're able to deploy each year? And then also the, the, the last critical assumption is how long it'll take for these cases to conclude on, on average. And so for us, when we think about this business, we try to come up with what we think are normalized or run rate economics when these funds are fully deployed. Trying to predict the earnings in any given year when you're, when you're accounting for it the way IMF does mm-hmm. is impossible. Right? But you, but you, you can have, take like, um, let's say like an average um, – you know, return, like based on what their historical, um, tra- you know, sort of success rate has been. And then and maybe you handicap that because, um, you know, to be conservative and because, you know, they're obviously trying to deploy more capital today than they were, you know, five years ago. Um, and, you know, that's kind of your normalized number, I guess. Is, is that your general framework? Exactly. Yeah. So we, we yeah. can, we can stress test, you know, the, the return assumptions and, and, you know, we, we assume some slippage over, over time. Right. Um, one thing we can do as an investor, the easy thing to do if we're trying to assess the business to get around this is just completely back out the income from the fair value movement line. In this way, we're looking at just the contribution of actual recoveries 
which would mm -hmm. be more similar to how IMF reports. Again, Burford, if you did this, Bert, you're still looking at partial and concluded realizations, but but at least it's it's starting to be more apples apples. More apples apples, yeah. Yeah, um, but when so, you when you yeah. make when you make this adjustment, the impact of Burford's PNL is remarkable. And to illustrate how significant the fair value movement income has been, I, I want to share with you the the following the following example. If we take Burford over the last three and a half years, so fiscal year 16, fiscal year 17, fiscal year 18, and the first half of 2019, mm -hmm. Burford has reported a cumulative net profit of $896 million. Now, if you back out the fair, fair value movement income, you reduce this figure by 74%. Wow. To, 200, to $234 million. To put, put that, that, to put that in context, if we were to annualize this $234 million over you know, three and a half years, on an annualized basis, you're, you're now talking about $67 million. If we were then to apply a generous 20 times PE earnings multiple on that $67 million, you would get a market cap of $1.3 billion, which is 40% below the current market cap. And, that, and that's after everything has transpired over the past couple of months. And then things get even more challenging. And this goes back to my point why we struggle in evaluating and assessing Burford. Things get even more challenging from a valuation perspective when you start to consider how much of Burford's earnings have come from a single case. And that's the Peterson case. Burford has recognized gains of $236 million relating to Peterson during that same three and a half year period. So what this means is when you strip out the income from fair value movements and the contributions from Peterson, and I'm not, I'm not denying that those, those contributions happen, but it's to make a point. When you back out the contributions from Peterson, Burford over the past three and a half years has generated a cumulative loss of $2 million. Yeah. Moving to IMF, I'm just curious in terms of their portfolio of cases. I mean, is it fairly diversified in terms of like overall contributions to IMF's revenues or, you know, is it sort of similar to this Burford example where there, there are one or two or three cases that, you know, just dis disproportionately contribute to IMF's bottom line? I mean, do you, do you know how they think about or just kind of how concentrated that book of, of, uh, of cases actually is? Yeah, so they, they have 94 cases in their, in their portfolio today. Um, they, they have taken significant efforts over the past four, four or five years to truly diversify their, their book uh, geographically by type of, by type of litigation, um, and, they, and they have been successful in, in doing that. Now, that said, there are two large cases within IMF's portfolio. They're like mini Petersons, if, if you will. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're called Wyvernhoe and Westgem. And we, we have a slide on about these two cases in, in our presentation. And again, because IMF carries a cost, you know, these cases haven't, they haven't hit the PNL um, of IMF yet. Mm -hmm. But what's, what's interesting, and it really speaks to the difference in terms of how these, these two firms communicate with the markets. Um, you know, the, these two cases, Wybenhall West End, have been going on for, for five, six plus years now for IMF. And these are both legacy investments so from their balance sheet they're not part of the funds and when whenever imf communicates to the markets they always say look we still have these two 
large cases outstanding. And, you know, if we were to lose one or either of these two cases, it would have a you know, material adverse impact on, on our economics, on our earnings, on our, on our cash. And, you know, I, I always get so frustrated every time I, I, I see that language because it's true. If they lost both cases, yeah, it would be, it would be a hit. These two cases, the asymmetry in these cases is so incredible. And in the slide, I don't have it right in front of me, but effectively together, we estimate that if they won both both of the cases, they'd be looking at a cash inflow of about $450 million. If they lost both cases, they're probably looking at a cash outflow of about $25 million, right? So it's, it's like a 20, 20x risk reward. And yeah. they, don't, they, they don't explain that to the markets, you know, and... The thing is, they're lawyers. They're conservative. They they have made a living out of funding class action shareholder lawsuits over the years. They don't want to say anything that would ever get them in trouble. So they're just very conservative. And, and their yeah. view is let the let the results speak for themselves. Yeah. They they've demonstrated that they, they over the past couple of years have meaningfully increased the amount of capital they're deploying. Um, you know, they've they've built out the network. I mean, the way they think about it is. They've made the investments over the past four years to to build out this global industry leading platform with offices around the world with by, with, with their investment managers across these different offices. Uh-huh. They they have the the capacity, and you know they 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 are incredibly excited about you know the years ahead. That's fantastic. Um... Peter, this is this is really great. Um, you know, I just want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to join us and uh, share your views. And hopefully, we can uh, chat again. Yeah, any 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 time, Davey. I really really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks, Peter. And that's all we have for you today. Thanks for listening, everyone. And a big thank you to Peter for chatting with us. You can read his original report and secondary research on SumZero. Please reach out to Avery at SumZero.com for an introduction to Peter and his team, or if interested in sitting for a future episode. Thanks again. Have a great day.